Welcome to Dream Makers, candid conversations with women that will change the way that you see purpose, success, and what it takes to bridge the two. I'm Neha Sampat, a three-time tech founder and CEO with a focus on companies that are places to dream big, build up, and be a good human. I'm CEO of Content Stack and also a certified sommelier. So yes, we drink wine here. In this episode, I will speak with, wait for it, Neha Sampat. You heard it right. Neha is my namesake, or maybe I'm hers or whatever, but she's CEO and founder of Gen Lead Belong Lab. And at the heart of this episode is talk of owning your value, belonging, and inclusion. Let's get started. Hi, Neha. Oh my gosh. Neha Sampath meets Neha Sampath. This moment has been in the making for decades and... I can't stop smiling because I'm so, I'm like truly so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm so happy here. And I actually can't believe that this is happening because we've <laughs> known of each other for so long, like literally over 20 years. And to be able to like finally converse and like I, we were just before we started talking, recording, we were just talking about how we've met so many people in common and we know of each other. We know, I've met, I think I had brunch with your brother like five years ago. <laughs> so we've been tagged in each other's posts on LinkedIn. And I'm pretty sure you got some funny emails when we were a lot younger from people in, in our <laughs> communities. And, um, and there's so many stories about us, the, the wrong Neha being credited for good work, which I have to say, I've never wanted to be mistaken for any other person, let alone Neha Sampat, because I have so much respect for the work that you do. And um, and I'm so happy that you've made our name even stronger. Oh my gosh, Neha Sampat. Take it from this, Neha Sampat, that the feeling is mutual. Things could have gone a very different way. Let me put it that way. Like I know people who Google their names and the most horrific stuff comes up, you know, where they have namesakes that, uh, you know, have a reputation they do not want to be known for. But we Google our name and... Your amazing face pops up, your remarkable achievements and contributions to the world pop up. And honestly, like you're a gift. <laughs> you are seriously a gift, my friend. And it is true. I also feel like honored to share your name. So, and likewise, thanks for being awesome. Yeah, no, thank you for being awesome. Like, I can't tell you how many times we've been mistaken for each other. And I feel guilty because it's like, an incredible article in like a top, you know, top well-known publication about something incredible that you've accomplished or the impact that you've made in the world. And then I feel guilty that my name is tagged. So I like try to go in and like fix it and say, giving credit to the right Neha. Oh my gosh. Most recently, I was booked to speak at this really cool event and I was super excited about it. And I, you know, was starting to get prepared for it. And I look at the topic and it's about imposter syndrome. And then I'm looking at what they're hoping to cover. And then it just kind of dawned on me. I was like, oh, no, they booked the wrong day. <laughs> <laughs> so It was inevitable. It was totally inevitable. It had to happen at some point. So we went back to the Speakers Bureau and just said, I think you met this Neha. I mean, happy to do it. But, you know, if, yeah. if you're looking for Neha and the, and the expert that you think you booked, it's probably this Neha. And it turned out to be true. And, and I, you know, made sure to, to turn that back over to you. Oh, my gosh. You're so amazing. Because here's the truth of the matter. You could have gotten up there and spoken about owning your value so exquisitely that no one would, you could have delivered on that, that I know for sure. But it is so interesting that that happened, because I think it it kind of took the mistaken identity, it like up leveled it, it was really, 
really fascinating. And when I started to think about just how our identities and who we are, how we've evolved and grown each of us, it's just fascinating how our worlds collide constantly. Like I feel like we're in the same orbit and we have been in some way over the past couple of decades. And I don't know that when I, 20 years ago, I I would have never foreseen myself as a public speaker on owning your value or anything like that. That was not, I I was not one of those people that had a plan that I was going to stick with necessarily, or, and maybe I had plans and I didn't stick with them. But to think that, you know, I took this very curvy path to get to where I am and somehow you're still there with me, like aligned in our missions there's some real beauty to that. There's something special there. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And I think recently, I remember you posted something on LinkedIn when you saw that there was a big mix up in a publication that was crediting you for some things. Talk about that. What was that like? So I usually can laugh about it when I realize that a mistake has been made. But this one, I think it, it struck me in a little bit of a different way. So what happened was, so I went to law school out here in the Bay Area, which is where I live now, and um, I've remained engaged with my law school like since I graduated, you know, via donating. More recently, once I started my business, you know, I do trainings and talks, empowerment stuff, and I, I deliver those, you know, like I've donated some, I've done, st- I've done some gi- actual gigs for the law school, and I've stayed connected. And so I, one fine day, I was just perusing one of the alumni journals. So they send out a publication twice a year. And in the back of it, it's like, you know, all this great stuff that's happening at the law school. And at the back of it, they have class notes. And so they list like accomplishments of some of their prominent alums by class year. And I was just flipping through it. I'm like, oh, I wonder who in my class is spotlighted in this one. And I see my name and I'm like, Oh, I didn't even know that they they wrote anything about me. And I was like, wow, how did I miss this? And as I started to read the description, it was like, Neha Sampath, class of 2000. And it described you. It was you. It was about you. It was your, all of, not all, because there were way too many of your accomplishments to list there, but many of your amazing accomplishments. I mean, that description was you. And I couldn't believe it. I was, honestly, was horrified because here I was, kind of that guilt you were describing, you know, receiving credit for a career's journey of yours that has been astounding. I mean, nothing short of astounding. And I was really mortified and I was mortified because it had gone out in a public way. So it wasn't just like one person thought, you know, I was you or you were me. It was like, this was published and all the alums got it. And that did not feel nice to me. That felt really terrible. And then and then I started to think about it also from the perspective of, well, that's funny. I mean, how could they miss it? How could this happen? And when I started to dig into how this could happen, I started to get upset because there was no way I could get around the fact that there was bias inherent in how this mistake happened. Um, because I know that someone probably looked up or got some, I don't even know, like some news alert on your name and made the assumption that that was me because how could there possibly be two Neha Summits, two people by that such an exotic, I'm using air quotes for folks listening, you know, such an exotic, unique name that, that it probably didn't even dawn on them that they should like 
Google check that or check on LinkedIn. I mean, it's so easy nowadays to verify. Because it's not Mary Smith. Like it's there's not, no exactly. way there could be another Neha Sethat that could do amazing things. Like how is that even possible? How is that possible? Exactly. So that really started to bug me because part of what I do for work is bias busting. And then the third part was like, yo, law school, like I'm in your face all the time, like doing stuff. It's not hard for you to actually identify which are actually my accomplishments, but you seem to not see those. And then you posted this other woman. So it was it was interesting. And then I, I think it would have been smoothed over relatively quickly had I not, you know, talked to the law school about it and faced a lot of friction in them admitting to the bias piece of it. So that started to like get me all like, come on, you know, this is bias, just own it. So then you can fix it. So we went down that that avenue. And it, it definitely had me pretty charged up. But you know, at the end of the day, I'm still always I mean, look, like, <laughs> if people want to think I was on a, a, a top 40 under 40 list, like, I, I, I'm not. So it's a lie. And that doesn't feel good. Um, but you have so many accomplishments that you really lift our name. I think the funny thing that I keep coming back to is I married a Patel. And you did, As too, did I, <laughs> which is also super weird and maybe a little cool. And I noticed that on Facebook at some point you started saying the Sun Patels, and that's what I call me and my husband, the Sun Patels. And I'm like, oh well, so we, we have these like bizarro universe things going on. But I remember I didn't want to take the name Patel because Neha Patel is such a common Gujarati Indian name. Totally. And so I was like, well, if it's Neha Sampat, like I'm not going to get mistaken for people and all the stuff I've published, I'll get credit for and I won't have yep. to be like this other Neha Patel. And then this is the world that we're in now. <laughs> Which is well, this isn't where it stops. You know that it's not done until we actually really meet in person. So that that is going to happen before, you know, hopefully before too long. Speaking of meeting in person, which hopefully will involve wine, let's definitely move to the tasting so we don't keep everyone hostage on the wine drinking. So I have got in front of me a nice little pour of Brunello di Montalcino. It's the Argiano, and we will post a link in the in the description. This is the 2016. There you go. You showed the nice bottle. And um, we're going to have a quick taste, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Okay. This is one of my favorites. I love doing these podcasts because you get have an excuse to have a drink in the middle of the day. Oh my gosh. It's so exquisite. Thank you so much for sharing this recommendation and this wine with me. As I mentioned when we were talking before we hit record, this has like nostalgia for me because I spent a little time in Tuscany really kind of deep diving. Well, probably not as deep diving as you deep dive, but deep diving for like someone who's not a professional in Brunello. So there's this like real fond place in my heart and they're just familiar to me and it takes me back there. That's the beauty of the nose and the flavor of wine is that it really can transport you. But I love it. I love it. Love it. I love that you have a story too to associate it with because I, to me, wine is about stories and experiences more than it is about the actual chemistry or the academic piece of it. But it is important that it is, it's Brunello di Montalcino. Montalcino is in Tuscany. The region is known for making wines from Sangiovese. It borders Chianti. So most people, when they think of Sangiovese, are thinking about Chianti, which is a very different style of wine. And so when you're drinking a Chianti, you know, at a big Italian family restaurant and, you, and you're like, oh, that's a Sangiovese. It's very light and like acidic. This has got a lot more complexity and a lot more culture and a lot of history. And so this winery in particular was, made, was built in the 16th, 16th century. So it's got a lot of history and it's been passed down generation to generation. So beautiful wine, lots of, lots of great fruit, acidity, beautiful ruby red color. And we'll continue to enjoy it over the next few minutes while we continue to chat. 
Well, I have to actually ask you something, Neha, because, you know, I've got the expert right here, so I might as well ask. We are vegetarians. So what has become difficult is pairing like really full-bodied reds with food. Yeah. Obviously, I am going to just drink this. Like, I don't need to have food with it. But as I have matured, I have started to really enjoy pairing wine with food. So do you have suggestions for a vegetarian? I can't tell you how much I love this question. <laughs> one of my, I'm a vegetarian too, surprise. Oh, amazing. That we would have that in common. One of my passions is finding wines that pair well with good vegetarian food. And I actually <sighs> think I want to do like a book on it one day. And you so must. we should talk more about this. But I actually yes. really love Italians because a lot of vegetarian foods are high in acidity. If you think about like Italian foods, you know, we're eating pizzas and we're eating a lot of sauces and things like that. So I, I love Italian wines for that. And the sort of the rule of pairing is that you want to do like things. So with an acidic wine, you kind of want an acidic food. Acid meets acid. Okay. With like a really fatty food, like something with a lot of cream, or if you do like a mushroom with a creamy sauce, you kind of want something fattier or earthier. Earthier. Okay. Typically, we would go like with a, like if you had a creamy ravioli, you would probably go for something more like a Pinot Noir, right? So okay. you kind of like look for fat meets fat. Acidity meets acidity. So this is like tomato sauce-based dishes? Are you thinking that? That's what I would have with it. Now, if you're a meat eater, you would probably go with something bigger, like a lamb or something like that. But for us, it's great with like a a really good wood-fired pizza. I always bring in like a Brunello or a Barolo for that type of experience. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I love this wisdom and I will be utilizing it sooner (laughs) than you might expect. (laughs) Oh, so exciting. Okay. Let's talk about... Back to checking your biases. And I know that this is one of your rally cries and just a good starting off point to talk about the work that you do with Gen Lead Belong Lab. So just tell us a little bit about that. So we are a belonging strategy firm. So we're all about helping organizations create cultures of belonging into which each person can bring more of their true and best self. So on the organizational side, it's about creating space Um, starting to disengage from old molds of success, right? Like I think about job descriptions a lot. And like, if you think of the job requirements as like boxes to check, and I think a lot of orgs, most orgs still treat these very much, very formulaically. It's like, yeah, and, and and the job description is created in the model of the last person who did the job well, right? Like, let's have that person write the job description for us, which is often how it happens. But what we struggle with is none of us can ever fit into a mold created by somebody else, right? And and that limits us. We have to cut off parts of ourselves to squeeze ourselves into these boxes. And so what I'm trying to do with organizations is help them not look at things as a bunch of boxes to check, try to see how they have to break the mold of leadership to allow people to create new molds. That's on the organizational level, kind of the, the macro view of it. And then on the individual level, I work with individuals to help them find their voices, help them figure out who they really are, and then to project that into the world with courage. Because oftentimes when we think about people who are marginalized or multiply marginalized, you know, we I can speak having experienced this, and I'm curious as to if you have as well in some way, but like I learned how to play the rules of the game very, very efficiently, you know, because those are the rules that were that were required for me to succeed. And I didn't start my business till six years ago. So I was playing like for the man, quote unquote, right? So it wasn't up to me. I wasn't my own boss. And I had to kind of play that game not created by me or for me. And in the course of doing that, I really lost touch with 
with who I really was. And I forgot how to find that unique part of me and to amplify it with with courage and, and with conviction. And so that's a lot of the work I do on the individual level is how do I help people really sit with who they are and what's amazingly unique about them? And how do I help them bring that into into their workspace and into their world more broadly? So that's big picture. It's about belonging. Along the way, it ends up being what a lot of orgs call diversity and inclusion, but I take a very bottom-up belonging approach to it. So that's what kind of sets us apart, um, you know, a little different. So it's about building belonging and busting bias because bias is probably one of the biggest barriers to any of us feeling like we belong. So they have to kind of go hand in hand. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, I can relate to all of that given I've been an entrepreneur in tech and a non-engineer and a female yeah. in uh, Silicon yeah. Valley for so many years. And if I go back to my early days, I think I was very fortunate to kind of uncover some of my belonging and the value I was bringing to my organization as a non-technical person. And I had like a lot of confidence at a very early age, which not everybody has right away, right? Some people have to build it over time. And I just think about like in like trying to fight, constantly fight for that sense of belonging in what in quote unquote um, man's world, especially 15 years ago, right? And you're oh yeah, just like trying to work your way up in an organization. I remember I got a job, got promoted, got promoted again, and I'm like mid twenties and managing people that have been in this business for 20 to 25 years, Ooh. males, many oh. white males. And so you're, you want that sense of belonging, but you really don't belong in that role yes. in terms of what the bias is and what the, what the standards have been set uh, perceived to be for so long. And I, like, I remember I was trying to take up golf so I could be more like <laughs> a man, you know, like, and that wasn't, I'm not good at golf. I'm still not good at golf. But what's interesting is like studying wine ended up elevating like my sense of belonging with some of these people. Like I got invited to dinners that I was the only female, I was the only brown person. And wow. That's not why I did it. I did, I studied wine because I was passionate about it. Yeah. But it gave me a seat at the table where I may not have otherwise been included. And not everybody has those like chances. It was, it was luck that got me in a door and opened up new doors for me. And I, I really applaud the work that you do because it's hard to find yourself, especially when you're just kind of navigating the early stages of your career. Oh, totally. I mean, I find such beauty in your story. Like I need to chew on it for a while because I don't know the story about how you got how you how you got into wine, but I, I can assume that it was separate in some way from like work. For right? sure. It was like so I love that because it's this idea that there are all these other aspects to you and other interests you have that may not logically seem like they would feed each other. But this is what I try to tell my clients all the time. I'm like, don't just draw this big, you know, line between professional and personal or whatever that might be. Like you are a whole person and what you do in your downtime, what your joy and your hobbies are and those skills that you develop in those hobbies, those are, those might be exactly what you can leverage in the workplace that are going to take you to the next level. But we're so accustomed to like separating these. So I, I love that you didn't even intentionally necessarily do that. It's that your joy and your skill set that you developed in the wine uh, kind of really, you know, open doors for you, like you just said. That is yes. super cool. Well, and, and that's stuck with me, right? And so 
fast forward and I'm running my own company. I've got like a team, a talent acquisition team. And we're thinking about, you know, who do you want to attract? What's the talent that you want to bring into the organization? And we're all thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, whether we were thinking about it before it became cool to think about it or not. Like we're, you know, everybody's thinking about it. And, and from my perspective, you know, I was in San Francisco for so long in the, in Silicon Valley. And I, I was inspired by my employees in Austin because they all had like a side hustle. Like I had a singer on my team. I had a book writer. I had a, a bass player and they all had the thing that they were passionate about outside of work. And after 20 years of like the state from, from dot com to SaaS and cloud and mobile and uh-huh. like just hearing the same buzzwords for so long, it was always so refreshing to come and visit my team in Austin because there was something else that they were interested in. And they brought that part of them to the workplace. And I, I specifically remember like I have I had a sales rep who wanted to write a novel and he would write out like he would script out his conversations with prospects as if he was writing a book or like a script, like a movie script. And and he was such a great seller because he would like act out his part as a sales rep, whether he was really a sales rep, he was just an actor. And it was just so cool to see how people can bring those talents that are not typical into the workplace to really make a difference and perform really well in their jobs. Oh my gosh, you have just like, you just defined exactly what I'm trying to do, both organizationally and individually. That is such a powerful story. Awesome. Neha, I love that you call owning your value, your heart song. What do you mean by that? I call all our programs that are geared at busting imposter syndrome and as a form of internalized bias, call them all owning your value because that's at the end of the day, what it's about. That's the positive. That's like, you have to like bust through our self-doubt and imposter syndrome. So quick definition of imposter syndrome for listeners that might not be as familiar with it. It's that feeling that you're not cut out for the work you're doing or the work you want to be doing often in spite of evidence to the contrary, because we don't tend to see that evidence to the contrary. We're convinced that we're not cut out for it, combined with a fear of being discovered as a fraud. We're scared. We feel like we don't, everyone else has it figured out. We're the only ones who don't. We don't belong cognitively or competency-wise. And we're scared people are going to find out that we don't belong, that we're not Um, We're out of our leagues, so to speak. So it's super, super common um, in tech, in the law, probably, you know, I'd say cross industry uh, pretty uniformly. But that was really my heart song, like because almost everyone I spoke with would own up to having struggled with imposter syndrome or currently struggle with it, even up to like the person in charge of a company or a firm, right, would could whisper in my ear, Neha, yeah, I totally have that. And I'd be like, wow, like, could you be more public about that? Because that could be very powerful for all the juniors that come up after you. And they'd be like, no, 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 I don't want anyone to know. I'm, I don't want anyone to find out I'm feeling this way. So um, it was a very uniformly experienced struggle, but everyone was struggling alone with it. Everyone thought they were the only one. And here I am hearing from everyone that I'm the only one who feels this way. And I'm like, no, like I can't betray confidences people have placed in me, but I can tell you that you're not alone. You're far from alone. And so I went to orgs to really say, you know what, this is a really common problem. It impedes our ability to work up to our potential and bring our awesomeness to our work. 
that's that's hugely problematic and it contributes on an individual level to a lack of well-being you know we're constantly stressed out um a, a lot of kind of like substance abuse and mental health issues can result from like constantly feeling like you're out of your league so there's a wellness component to it there's an inclusion component to it in that like i said it's a form of internalized bias like as a woman as a brown woman that voice in my head that tells me i'm not good enough is often the voice of people over the course of my life who out of their biases have told me I'm not good enough, right? And so when you're bombarded with all those messages, that can become the voice in your head. So there's this connection with with inclusion and diversity, um, professional development, leadership development. So I'm like, dude, this is it. You got to attack this problem. It's going to have massive ripple effects in all these different areas. And orgs were like, oh, no, no, we don't have any imposters here. So it took a lot of kind of doing work on my own time and dime. And that's what really proved to me that this was my heart song. Like, this is the work that people told me, like, well-meaning mentors were like, Neha, don't try to sell imposter syndrome. It's, It's really hard to sell that. And I was like, well, I mean, I've got solutions to a very common problem. I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try it. I'm going to do it my way and see if it pans out. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I trusted my heart because it did pan out. I mean, now the topic is hot, 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 as it should be. And um, I think there's a lot of fluency around it. There's less shame associated with it. Like we're actually able to move the needle on it. Okay, so heart song. Your journey, it started completely differently. And you talked about at the beginning, like you kind of took a curvy path to this. Yeah. And you were originally a lawyer. You talked about being in law school. So like, how did you get from there to here? And, and like, just tell us about what that was like. Yeah. It's so fascinating because when I tell people my story, they're like, whoa, that's like all over the place. And for me, it all makes complete sense because every next step built in some important way on the last one. But, um, but it is, I can see that it's curvy. So I started out practicing law. I went into, I, I, out of law school, Bay Area, 2000, the first tech boom, IP law. I just kind of went with where the current took me. And so I was a tech licensing lawyer, which now like makes my husband just like throw his head in his hands because I hardly can figure out how to turn my computer on. He's like, how were you ever an IP lawyer? <laughs> Uh, But I was, I swear to you, I was. So I did that in big law. And then in that first year of practice, I was feeling misaligned. And that was not surprising to me because I always knew that my cause was, at the time how I labeled it was education. Now I label it more broadly as empowerment. Uh, But at the time I'm like, my cause is education. Like I believe that by educating or empowering, as I call it now, that's how you actually impact change in the world. Like you actually catalyze um, into change. And so I, I thought to myself, that's my cause. Someday I'm going to do something in education. And very quickly in that first year of practicing law, I was like, wait a second. Why does someday have to be so far away? Like no one said it has to be so far away. Why can't someday be today? And once I asked myself that question, I had no good response. There was no reason why it couldn't be today. So I immediately started figuring out how do I get into education because I didn't know what I wanted to do in education. So I I just didn't know. So I started to kind of narrow down. I'm like, I need to get my foot in the door. So what I ended up doing was very strategically 
shifting my practice. I stopped practicing tech law and I went to work for a boutique law firm representing California school districts. So I started practicing education law. I didn't know that. That's so interesting. Yeah. I didn't even know education law existed until that moment when I started researching and found that it existed. I thought this is perfect because I can make this transition. That's not like a huge leap. You know, they might actually hire me for this. And then if I end up falling in love with it, I was open to falling in love with it. I'm like, if I fall in love with it, great, we're done. But I kind of suspected that I wasn't going to. I kind of thought this is probably an intermediate step. So I took that intermediate step, stayed far longer than I had planned because it was just stressful for me and um, time just really busy, time just flew by. About four years later, I was like, oh my gosh, what am I still doing here? This wasn't the plan. And so I was really worn down at that point and I, I knew I needed to take the next step into education, into really more of what I wanted to do. But again, I didn't know what that was. And I was too burned out and stressed out to be able to make good decisions. So I left. I left and the net appeared, um, as that saying goes, although I just said it in the not articulate way. But um, that's what I did. Like I, I quit and I didn't have another job lined up, which is so not Indian, right? Like I am, I am good little Indian girl and there is nothing good little Indian girl about like quitting your job with a bunch of law school loans without even knowing what the heck you're going to do next. Just knowing you don't want to be a lawyer anymore. <laughs> so, so I sat on my couch and watched a bunch of ER reruns for a month to heal my heart. And then I just started exploring and figuring out what was out there. And I ended up finding an amazing job at a law school in student services. So I took that job as assistant director, a year later became dean of students taught at the law school leadership, was there for 10 years. It was amazing. And at the end of that 10 years, which coincided with my 40th birthday, coincided with me having had our, my, our second kid, I was like, you know what? Something's got to change. And now in retrospect, I know what was happening was that I wasn't growing at the pace I need to. Like growth is one of my values. And I was kind of stagnant to a certain degree. So that was the big driver for me. That was part of my kind of, this isn't, I need to get moving. And it was also, I wanted to dig deeper on diversity, inclusion, uh, belonging. So I looked for some job. I'm like, this is the magical job I want. I'm 40 years old. I deserve what I want. I'm not going to like sacrifice. And there was no magical job that met all those requirements. And so I had no choice but to create that job. And that is how Gen Lead Belong Lab was born. Okay, there was a lot there, but I wanna, I wanna underscore a couple of things that you said because I think they're super important, especially for our young listeners. You called out that in very early in your career, you know, right out of law school, and you're a year into your career, and you're saying, someday I wanna do this. And at that moment, you had the foresight to say, why can't someday be now? And I think that's so important because so many of us spend so much time trying to do what's right and follow the rules and go sequentially with what's expected of you or what society expects of you. And you didn't do that and you knew not to do that very early on. And that led you to a lot of really interesting experiences in your journey to the point at which you ended up being, and I've heard you say this before, the reluctant entrepreneur. Oh yeah, I am totally that. So yeah. talk about that. What does that mean? Yeah, so I'm a very resourceful person. So when I knew I wanted to leave the last job, I went back to my law school and they had a person, a career services person who helps alums. So I'm like, I got to get this person's help. Robert was his name. I'm like, Robert, help me out. This is what I want in a job. And he kind of lo looked at me quizzically. He's like, wow, you have a lot of things. You have a lot of demands, <laughs> in other words, right? And he's like, 
Neha, I have to ask you, like, how entrepreneurial are you? Because I think he knew that I wasn't going to find this. And I was like, not at all, Robert, as laughing in his face. And then, you know, I went and did my job search thing for about six months. And finally, through just, again, like, I was so stubborn about not giving up what I knew I wanted in this next stage of my career. I felt like I had made those sacrifices early on. I'm like, no, 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 I've come too far. I know, no, 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 for sure what I want. If that doesn't happen, it's just not happening. So I couldn't find it. And I literally called Robert back up and I said, Robert, it turns out, I guess I am entrepreneurial. I had no idea even what the freaking heck that meant. I just knew that the only way I was going to get to do what I wanted to do was to create it myself. And the magical, most beautiful, one of the most beautiful things of my whole life, I'm sure it still be, will be on the day I die, is that this is exactly what I was meant to do. I mean, I did not know what I was getting into. I had no idea what it really would be like, but it was the greatest gift I gave myself. Like allowing myself to surprise me was truly a gift. Like it, it just... It has given me more, not just career-wise, but it's given me the personal growth and development I really needed. Like we talked about finding our voices, right? And how that was such a big struggle for me. That was probably, this has been one of the biggest struggles of my life. And entrepreneurship is what helped me find my voice. Like silence everyone around you, sit in an office, a home office by yourself and figure out how you're going to run a company. Like the only voice you're going to hear is the one coming from inside you. <laughs> That only gives me the chills, but it also makes me so happy because I have, I have those moments often. And I think, you know, I like to ask the question, like, what was your just do it moment? I think you kind of uncovered it in that story. But I mean, I'd like to verify that. Do you think that was a just do it moment for you? I think it was definitely a just do it moment. It's funny because I think there are the just do it moments that feel like they're not choices, even though they are. We forget we have agency. But like for me, I, the way I just described it is like, well, I couldn't find what I wanted. So I just kind of fell into it. It's not true. I mean, I exercised agency over it. I think that was a just do it moment. But then, you know, there are, I, I'd like to think I have just do it moments every dang day. Like I think that that's part of my goal is how do we keep pushing ourselves? Like how do we allow ourselves to, how do we embolden ourselves to dig into a little bit of discomfort? Because that's where we grow as humans. But that was definitely a big just do it moment, for sure. That's really good advice. And on the note of advice, for someone who might be a reluctant entrepreneur, or, you know, kind of comfortable with their paycheck and their day job, do you have any advice for like, how do you get to your just do it moment? I think it's a mindset. I mean, I think it is this mindset of allowing yourself to surprise yourself. I and mean, I think it's the same thing when you think organizationally as a manager or a leader in your organization. How are you going to allow people to surprise you? Like I think about that story you told about the novel writing person um, on your team. And you allowed that per your culture created space for that person to bring that element of surprise. Like that's not what was expected for that role, but there was a space for that person to surprise you. And so I think if we if we allow ourselves don't don't box ourselves in, I think is what I'm trying to say. Allow ourselves to evolve. Like I said, I literally never in my life would have ever seen myself here. Not for 1 millisecond would I've ever 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 dreamed that I would run my own business. And I, the story I tell in many of my keynotes is about how I had 
like paralyzing imposter syndrome around public speaking. Paralyzing imposter syndrome around public speaking. That is what I do for a living. That is what I'm known for. So hard to imagine that just with how free you are and how comfortable you are speaking. It's amazing. Yeah. But I mean, that's another piece of it. That's a reminder to me that we sometimes hold ourselves back unintentionally. There's plenty of societal forces placed upon us that hold us back, but we don't want to add to that and be part of the force that holds us back. So I think my advice is always like, what I used to tell my law students, you didn't go to law school to like put blinders on yourself and only see straight ahead, right? Like you went to law school not to close doors, but you went to law school to open doors. So that was a real mindset shift for them. This idea that, yeah, I may have gone to law school and got this degree, but that doesn't mean I have to practice law, right? Like that means that I can utilize this degree and this education and this experience. If I take the blinders off, I can see the whole world around me and I can start to get creative about how I can leverage that unique experience. My nephew and I say this jokingly when we're talking about doing something, don't let your dreams be dreams. Like it's kind of this like push yourself and do the thing you're going to do. Okay, I am going to move into rapid fire and I ask the same few questions at the end of every episode. So I'm going to start with my favorite question, which is what is your wake up song? That's like really hard for me to think about because I have like different eras of wake up songs, but I'm going to go with one of the classics, U2 in God's Country from the moment the music starts with the frenetic guitar, just the pace of it and the energy of that song that is relentless throughout the entire song. It just invigorates me. And then I think the other piece, I'm trying to think about like why that's like a wake up song for me. I think about it as waking up, not necessarily waking up in the morning, but like waking my soul up, like waking my spirit up. And I feel like the passion with which Bono sings generally, but definitely it's evident in that song. It's like his voice is all the way to the edge and about to crack. And I feel emotional about that. Okay, if your 19-year-old you asked you what you should be listening to or reading, what would you recommend? So reading, I'm in the middle of reading Glennon Doyle's Untamed. And I've read her other books and I really like them, but Untamed is like where it's at for me. Um, This idea, she really taps into again that idea of us not trying to like fit into a mold and be what, not be caged, right? Like how do we uncage ourselves? And that is the very much the journey of my life. How have I like been the rebel? How have I defied the norms placed upon me to create space for me to be who I am and for other people to be who they are? And as a 19 year old, I think I had that energy that later got kind of tamped down by society and by the expectations of work. So I think as a 19 year old, it would have been such a great book to read to reinforce what was there in my heart and I think it would have stuck like I would have been a little more bold throughout my life and then what to listen to well honestly I would tell young Neha Sampath the first of her name (laughs) not the first of her name but I know I'm older than you (laughs) I would tell myself to listen to Neha Sampath well both Neha Sampaths but really like listen to yourself young Neha because that's where I feel like I went off the right path for me when I started to keep giving people what I felt like they wanted to hear and that I became so good at that that I forgot about what I wanted to say and so if I could have listened to myself a little more it would have been interesting. I mean, I don't regret anything. I think this was my journey, but but I, to all 19-year-olds out there, look, nobody knows you but you and get a lot of advice, but at the end of the day, you've got to follow your own heart. Only you know what is right for you. 
That's great advice. Can you recommend a wine? Yes. So the one I've really been enjoying the past few years has been the, you know, every subsequent vintage of uh, Pays sur Terre. So I'm totally butchering the French pronunciation, but it's not a French winery. It's a Paso Robles winery. Pays sur Terre's Cunois. Um, it's called Days Between. It's like the perfect cocktail wine. It's really nice served a little bit chilled. It has a really round mouthfeel without being heavy, if that makes sense. Yes. Like it's fascinating. It has floral undertones and fruity undertones and it's interesting, but it's still light and you can have it on its own. And I don't know, that has been like my go-to the past. I tried to get one. You can't even get them right now for the current vintage. They're sold out. Otherwise there would be one on its way to you, Neha, but maybe next vintage. That sounds fantastic. I will keep that on my list. And Finally, last question is, what should our listeners do tomorrow to help them become dream makers? Okay, well, I'm going to just kind of pull something from the owning your value work we do. So listeners, write down or type up one thing you want to do or be in your life. It can be something small that you want to do tomorrow, or it can be some like major career, whatever shift. And then I want you to type underneath that, What makes you uniquely qualified for that? Don't think about who's done that thing before and think about this is what it takes to do it. But think about yourself and who are you? What are your unique perspectives, strengths, qualifications? Jot those down and then connect the dots. Write down what those unique strengths and qualifications that you have, how they make you qualified for that thing you want to be or do. Talk about empowerment. That is a super powerful message. There's never anything more powerful than clearly written expectations. And then taking yourself and connecting it to that helps manifest it into something very real. So thank you for sharing that. I will take that advice myself. And thank you for being on. It was such a pleasure to finally meet in person-ish in person. Hopefully we can do this in real life soon. But thank you again. This was such a pleasure. And I'm so glad we had a chance to finally meet. Oh my gosh, Neha Sampath, I adore you. I respect you so much. You truly are someone I learn from, even though we don't get to talk. I hope we will now more more now that we've actually properly connected. But I really thank you for the space you're creating in this world for people to be who they are. It, it super matters. It matters to me. And cheers to you. Cheers to us. Cheers to the Neha Sampaths. To Neha Sampaths around the world, all two of us. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Dreammakers podcast. You can reach out to me, Neha Sampat, on Twitter at NehaSF, that's N-E-H-A-S-F, with your comments, suggestions, your favorite wake-up song, wine, or Dreammaker woman to know. Please also leave a review and subscribe to Dreammakers wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, keep dreaming big, building up, and being a good human. 